This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and this is the show where I get to sit down with amazing founders and CEOs that are building incredible consumer brands, and I get to hear their story and what makes them who they are, how they got to where they are, and everything in between. So today, this is episode 138, and I sat down with Sahand Dilmagani, the founder and CEO of Terra Cafe. Transforming the in-home coffee experience, Terra Cafe is a direct-to-consumer luxury coffee machine brand founded in 2018. Sahand and I talked about how moving to Berlin to work for a startup changed his life, how he came up with the idea to build a new coffee machine, and why luck comes to those who are prepared to receive it. I hope you enjoyed this inspiring episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, tell your friends, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Sahan. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm excited to hear your story in building Terra Cafe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. How many people mispronounce Terra Cafe? I would say about half. (laughs) Yeah. I think the only reason I I know is because of XRC. So the accelerator that we were both part of way back in the day, I remember hearing it numerous times and it stuck with me. So but I can't wait to figure out why you decided to name the company that. Before we kind of dive in, I know you're you're calling from Brooklyn in New York. Yes. Um, where are you from originally? There's a few answers to that question. I am born and raised in Northern Virginia. Usually, lions say out that say DC for people that aren't familiar with the DMV region. I was born to two Iranian immigrant parents that uh, came in the early 80s, late 70s. I uh, was raised there, but hopped around a lot. So I actually spent a good amount of time living in China. So hopped back and forth to China and then, you know, went to university, graduated in the US and uh, worked here for a little bit before moving abroad for a few years and then uh, made my way back here. So before we dive into kind of college and work life, what were you like as a kid? What were you into? What did you want to be when you grew up? I was definitely high energy. I think that would be the first thing I would say. Very high energy, even without the caffeine. <laughs> Pre-coffee, you were even pre, high. <laughs> pre-coffee me was, you know, you, what you see is what you get with me. Was very, I think it would be generous to say prolific. I was definitely doing a lot of things and, and, and kind of like the tinker toggler of stuff. So I basically was always very active in academics, active in sports, active in volunteering, definitely had a bit of a tiger mom where you had to check a lot of boxes in the household. But I actually genuinely enjoyed doing a lot of those things. So it was like, you know, you can point to being in language classes for four different languages through, you know, from childhood through high school, 
was traveling a lot, but a lot of times with the with the connection to academics. So when I was going back and forth, living in China was always tied to some to some extent, either working or studying. I actually had my first job was starting and starting a company was my first job outside of the lemonade stand uh, was starting an ultimate frisbee clinic, which was like a summer camp for people in the local Northern Virginia region. How old were you? That age? That was either 15 or 16. Ultimate frisbee camp. Yeah. Supernova frisbee. Supernova frisbee. What is that? I don't know anything about frisbee other than yeah, you don't want to know my version. It's like, you know, I thought it was for dogs. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> Tell me about this human Frisbee playing. I was, a, yeah, a precocious, like, brand strategist from a young age, I'm sure. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was definitely not my highlight in branding, but I was, uh, I, I basically just did a play on words of Northern Virginia was referred to as Nova. So I thought it was very clever at the very clever. right age of, yeah. Did you have siblings? growing up I did I had one older brother and I was very very competitive with him how many years apart four years apart so we just missed each other going through like you know high school college and so on so why were you competing with your older brother all the time I loved loved every time I would go into like anything with academics or sports like I would see his like rankings and I would just want to beat them so like we did the same sports we were both rowers and wrestlers and I definitely had you know I guess that's not a a far leap from being high energy is also being competitive so I definitely I I saw that and I I totally aligned to the notion that one should really be competitive with themselves and constantly progress forward and I think it was always with a good spirit, but I definitely loved having a number on the board to beat. Have you ever taken the DISC assessment? <laughs> what is that? I'm not familiar. Really? Oh, I, I need to talk. I feel like I want to bring this up on every episode now is like this behavioral test. There's a bunch of them out there, but one of the ones that I took recently is called the DISC assessment, D-I-S-C. And D stands for, and I might get this wrong people, so don't quote me, but D starts is I think stands for dominance. And, and that's like, you've got a lot of energy, you're a, a leader, natural leader, you're like dominant, you want to have all the authority, make all the decisions, like it's a very big kind of like leadership quality, right? You like decision making. I is I think influential, which means you're optimistic, you're a people person, you're outgoing. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably a high DNI. I had I had my team pleading with me to do an Enneagram. And for anybody out there who knows what that is, I'm an eight through one apparently. So, and a heavy eight is supposedly. Oh, I want to take this is one I haven't taken yet. I want to do that one next. Yeah, yeah. But what is it? You're a high eight. What's an eight mean? I'm heavy on the eight side. So indexing on eight is basically meaning that you're like very independent, like very much like you want to like kind of uh, do your own thing or pave your own way. So it was not terribly surprising to say the least that that was one of the ones that I got. And then I, I forget three and one. I think it's it's a lot of kind of like a lot of the EQ stuff of like collaborative nature, like working with others. There's a lot of nuance to that that I'm sure I'm missing and somebody's going to correct me on all of that. But that's what I re like relatively recall it to be. Well, high energy, I think, is really important for entrepreneurship because you really need the energy to keep going all the time. <laughs> and stay Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to say the least. Yeah. 
So it sounds like you were pretty entrepreneurial. Looking back, you can point to a bunch of things, uh, the camp, the Frisbee camp that you started, and then the, uh, sounds like you had a lemonade stand as well. What were some of the the first jobs, I guess, when you actually, like after school and stuff like that, where where were you working and what did you want to kind of do? So even after the ultimate Frisbee, I tried to start a wind farm in the Midwest when I was 18. So that a wind was... farm. Why did you want to start a wind farm? Like, I wouldn't even know what that is like at my, at that age for me. I mean, I'm I, loved him. <laughs> I just loved environmental science, environmental sciences. Obama had just taken office. There were all these subsidies. It seemed like such a good thing to do that economically made sense. There was this, you know, consistent wind patterns in the Midwest. And I was like, it only takes $10 million to buy three, three megawatt turbines. And I was, of course, the naivety. Only of $10 a, million. That's all it takes. Why didn't it work out? Who knows? So, yeah, no, that was um, what we can add that to the kind of win some, learn some column. It's definitely under learn some. But that was one thing I tried again, kind of like. Connecting back to the competitive line, I guess, I was studying business. I was um, focusing on finance, IT, and Chinese. And then I was of the understanding that the kind of most prestigious or highest caliber thing to do out of a business school was to do investment banking. So out of, I guess, what I would call more competitive drive than intrinsic passion or interest was I wanted to try my hand at investment banking, M&A, private placement work. So working in professional services in that capacity, did that for two years. Everybody (laughs) warned me, I think prudently before I went into it, that it's not really a good fit for my personality. Why? Why is that? I definitely do like the collaborative nature of working with others through stuff. So as much as, you know, you can use that notion of self-starter to wanting to kick things off, I really enjoyed the nature of creatively working through things with people, you know, problem solving, but also just the joy of like, I think something that happens when you go through sports is like, you kind of like commiserate through like tough times. So it's like that misery loves company expression. And there was just something that was so joyous in the solidarity that you would feel with others going through something tough. And I find that the banking world, although taught me a lot of valuable skills that I still employ to this day for my company, and I think have served me well, is a very doggy dog kind of environment. It is uh, kind of looking out for number one, so to speak. And for me, it didn't feel it didn't feel like I don't want to be too dramatic here, but I think that there was definitely a little bit of like a toxic work culture in terms of how people wanted to lift each other up, or actually, really more accurately, were trying to raise themselves up at the expense of others. And I really, I actually really appreciated my managing director. I had a really good relationship with him. And I really learned a lot from him. But I could see systemically throughout banking how that can be problematic. And so I did my tier program and was very much ready to go back to startups, despite, you know, having an appreciative kind of mentee-mentor relationship with my MD. So what did you go off and do after that when you're like, okay, investment banking, it's not my my thing? I basically was deliberating between two paths. I was either going to go out to San Francisco and join a Series B startup out there in the kind of e-com marketplace category, or I was going to go to a pre-Series A startup in Germany. And I chose the latter. So I thought I was 24 years old. Whenever in my life am I going to have such an opportunity to shake things up? It was actually a company that I was involved with to a certain extent when I was living in China. That's where I actually got to know the founder and CEO. We were good friends. 
I speak Mandarin, so I was able to help him out here and there, but it wasn't really, you know, in a material sense, it was really more so just as a school project at the time, working on that with him was, it was a really enjoyable task. And I would say more culturally, behaviorally was somebody I connected with and admired a lot. And when he, you know, it goes from texting a buddy saying, Hey, what's up to one day he texts me and says, Hey, can you talk Tuesday at 4 PM New York time? And I'm like, this is about a job. And he's like, yeah, it's about a job. And I was like, okay. And, uh, yeah, you know, fast forward a few years was working in Berlin in a corporate development capacity, which kind of means you do everything and nothing, right? So you lived in Berlin. So you moved and you went all the way to, is that the first time you went to Germany or you had already traveled so much? I'm sure it was not a big deal to be like going to Europe and then living there to work, right? I quit on, a, I, I finished on a Friday and I started in Berlin on a Monday. I remember the only moment I freaked out. I had traveled a lot, you're right, but there was one freak out moment. And it was when the plane was landing in what was Tegel Airport, which doesn't exist anymore. I just remember realizing there was no return flight. And I was like, there's no return ticket. So, and it's always, you always get these kind of like pre-vacation jitters that are exciting and there's a novelty of landing somewhere new, but you know, you kind of got to make the most of it. And you're going to have to head back in a week or so. And I just remember being like, I'm not, there's no return. Like, of course I'll go back home now and again, but there's no trip back right now. And that was the only moment. And, you know, I, I didn't know German at the time. So you studied four languages, but German was not one of them. Didn't make the list until <laughs> I moved to Germany. And then I used to, I, of course, had to add it to the docket. So despite Berlin being a very English friendly city, almost a country. <laughs> right. City. What? Yes very multicultural, very international. So you have kind of this English through line. I used to do German lessons every morning from 6.30 to 9.30 a.m., ride to work, and then work all day and then go home and do my homework for German classes so I could pass my B2 exam to be able to work there in German if I wanted. So wow. why not throw that into the mix, you know? For my sister, if she's probably listening, because I think she listens to almost every episode, she moved to Germany and got a job there as well, ended up meeting her husband and now has been there for like almost 10 years. And she had to take classes as well to learn German. So I'm sure she feels your pain on having to balance work with studying. And it is not an easy language. My husband's German. My kid is learning German. I don't speak any German and I don't have any plans to, to be honest, because it is freaking <laughs> hard. <laughs> I, I remember everyone saying, oh, you're going to have such an easy time with it. It's so similar to English. You speak no, English, it's you'll be not. <laughs> that was such That's a, a lie. bait switch. It was. <laughs> Lies. Yeah. They're like, water is faster. It'll be easy. You're going to have such an easy time. I was like, that was so cruel. Like mm -hmm. then doing German at 630 in the morning, you're like, oh my gosh. All right. I got to make it through this. Yeah. It's yeah. A Talk about resilience. Yeah. Rough language. So how long were you in Germany? And then what happened after that? I was there for just over, just over two years. And while I was there, I got a lot of exposure to a lot of different things, be it manufacturing, production, business analytics, finance, expansion. We were going from the DAC region, which is Germany, Switzerland, Austria, over to the France and Netherlands at the time. Being a part of all of those work streams was an incredible experience. But of course, you know, you go through that crucible for two years and you realize, okay, like you've demystified building product. And really the, the main reason I wanted to go to the pre-Series A company over the Series B company was having always done entrepreneurial things, I knew I was going to want to do something myself at some point. And I thought, what better experience than going to a startup that does what I would call have some semblance of product market fit, 
that we had tested things out enough early on that I felt that the business had legs and there was some initial funding into the company to get that exposure of, let's see what it actually looks like to carry a company through from, you know, seven employees to 20 to 35 to 50, you know, and, 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 and feel that feeling, all those tension points and the excitement, the enthusiasm of the inflection points, but also all of the kind of challenges that come with it. And it was exactly that experience. And so I took a lot of that with me and combined it with the fact that I was always thinking through different ideas that I thought would be clever businesses that were, you know, unique opportunities in terms of white space aligned well with the macro environment. And again, kind of like demystifying what it takes to not just build a startup, but specifically within the complex hardware space, because it was an electric vehicle company. So it was like, okay, like I know what it takes to build a product. And then I would look left and I would look right. And I was just surrounded by these incredible designers, incredible engineers, incredible creatives. But the thing is, is you put yourself in this position, right? Strategically, basically. Like, I know I'm going to start something. So I want to be involved in this company where I know I can learn X, Y, Z or what it looks like to have a company of this size and watch it grow. I think that's like a key thing here. I think a lot of people kind of just look at opportunities or job opportunities as just that instead of like, this is a stepping stone for me to do X, Y, and Z. And I think that's like really important. I look back at like my own career and I think, oh my gosh, I remember I wanted to model. So I interned at a modeling agency so I could see what it was like to be a, see a model walk in. What did their portfolios look like? It was really helpful to help me get the lay of the land. Same thing with entrepreneurship. I want to build a tech company. So I interned at a, a tech accelerator and I was like, wow, look at these entrepreneurs. This is how you raise money. This is how they take something from zero to one. Like those things are so important. It's more important than the money that you get, anything else. It's like, choose your jobs or pick the path and try to do what you can to put yourself in situations where you can learn and grow and, and get you to where you want to go. I'm laughing because it was, I often point to the fact that it was the economically least lucrative thing I could have done. <laughs> like in a pre-series A startup in Berlin with, of course, a very low cost of living, but nevertheless, going from investment banking to that was a very, let's just call it a very steep, steep decline. And it was something that I knew what I was signing on to. But although it was the most economically arduous in terms of a transition from mm -hmm. one to the other. Culturally too, like you're in a whole new country, speaking a new language. Totally. I, I will say that it was socially and professionally the most enriching. I would not be here today if it was not for the people I met there. Still to this day, it provides me an unfair advantage in what I do. It, it continues to pay dividends. And it is both within the concrete work that they've done for me. There are friends that, you know, even when I'm like, hey, like, I'll pay you for that. They're like, don't you even dare offer that. Like, you know, but we all pay it for it. We all have a different skill set. We all help each other out. And I think that being there for each other is great because yes, it actually, there were real deliverables that were handed off to me that were incredibly valuable, especially at that point in time in the company's life cycle. But just in terms of a healthy, productive headspace, having good friends like that who care about you, that want to lift you up, that can actually provide a little bit of equanimity in, in the journey of you know, entrepreneurship is incredibly valuable because as much as it is, you know, in startups, it can be a death by a thousand cuts. It's also like resilience by like a thousand band-aids, you know, like, it's like, like, no, like, yeah, I'm going to solve it. Like I <laughs> resilience by a thousand band-aids. 
It hasn't. I haven't heard it. This is probably like the 140 something, you know, whatever interview I've done, and I haven't heard that yet. So, yes. <laughs> I, I don't mean to talk about that startup too much, but I honestly, it was so informative for me. It was so enriching. Like, I was, I remember debates that we did about huge opportunities that could have transformed the business. And then things we took as opportunities, things we didn't because we negotiated and realized or debated internally realized it was a huge distraction. Having no budget for things and being like, how are we still going to sell? We have no budget at all. It's like, let's get creative. Time to get creative. Like, I really loved those moments as challenging as they were. I think those trials and tribulations are the perfect precursor to starting your own thing because you have this certain scar tissue or ton of tolerance is probably a better way of putting it that you're kind of accustomed to it. You kind of anticipate, you're like, I know what this looks like. I know how tough it can be, but I also know what the other side of the coin looks like. And when you kind of work that, that harder, you know, you're one of those people. It's like, look, I have that drive intrinsically. It's going to be there regardless of whether I work for myself or someone else. It is so much more satisfying when it is your own idea that you've carried from ideation into production or or development to the point where you actually have it in the hands of users. It's so, I, it's it's hard to articulate candidly about what that feels like, but I think that that's such a meaningful experience that um, I try and encourage everyone to go into it. Like I, I think there's a bit of a criteria checklist you need to think through before you really make the leap and it doesn't need to be perfect. I think that absolutism is really risky and then people will never really make the jump. Like, it's not, it's not perfect yet. Like it doesn't really need to be actually like, it won't be because you're going to iterate a hundred times from what you, your first idea was. But I really think that it's a, it's an incredibly valuable thing to at least try uh, once, but I will caution everyone. Once you do it for real once, it is incredibly addictive. It is what you're saying about enriching opportunity you you kind of were saying that 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 opportunity in berlin was going to be the most enriching it may have not been paid the most and i find that really interesting do you think that's even the right word i would like to find the right word for like choose the most blank opportunity i was talking to one of my um account executives from one of the tech companies that i was working with running sa the sales department and she had gotten a job opportunity to work at two different places. She got two different offers. And this was after I left. And so she came to me for some advice on which one to take. And the first option was like going to a very similar industry type of job where she'd get paid a lot because she has a lot of experience. And it was really like this kind of shiny, perfect, good benefits, cozy position that would get her a really good salary. Then there was this other company where it was like, earlier stage startup, lots of potential, moving super fast, not in the same industry, lots of learning to do. And it was almost like maybe she was even a little afraid if she could succeed in an environment like that. And I really pushed her to, well, first it's like, what do you want out of this? What do you want out of your career? But I think you should always choose the more challenging role, the one where you're going to get stretched the most, challenged the most and enriched. You don't want to sit cozy. Who wants to sit like that you know yeah i would i would <laughs> i would like it's so hard and at times to like paint with a broad brush right because you're like okay different people need different things but i think in the spirit of like trying to like catch your complacency because it's like it's a safe space to go to but actually like as you're going through your journey of life it's is it actually the one you're going to be the most satisfied with as far as like what matters to you and everyone's you know again like the one thing you'll learn about living in berlin and like everyone has like a very different 
perspective on like what is a meaningful life to them and if you're an artist and you just want to paint all day and that's all that matters to you and you just need a subsistence living like that's an amazing thing it's not an easy life to your point like there's a lot of discomfort that i don't think a lot of people could endure that comes with that but it's what gives you the most you know gratifying feeling at the end of the day for something that you're going to dedicate a huge part of your life to I think for me, when you when you say like, what's another word instead of enriching, I was thinking like, it's just a big unlock, like it unlocks your ability to do a lot of different things. So it's like, if you want to put another kind of tool in the utility belt, it really does arm yourself with the right skills to be able to understand it quickly, which means like, you'll start to understand the rules to know when you need to break the rules. Like that's what I've always noticed about good athletes. They're very aware of, yeah, that's the rule. You don't push up past the midfield line, but sometimes you do need to break that rule and there's a reason why and there's a way to do it right and that's what i was like it was like understanding that you're going to just get better and better at doing these things because you're employing those skills are that well yeah that you've been arming yourself with over time with those different moments it's like know what that the purpose of it is have things sequenced out it'll never follow exactly the trajectory that you want but it is definitely going to be you know this line which although it's like sometimes non-linear like it is actually trending in that direction and i think that's the hard thing to have patience with sometimes is like it won't necessarily like just be you know a b c and you're done it's going to be like a to like k to you know x to seven four b d you know you're yeah, like, kind of all, like hopping all over this yeah. yeah and you're trying to make sense of it but it actually you know if you can like zoom out it does pace in that direction and that's kind of like avoiding that myopia that happens a lot. It's like, I want it now. Like, I totally get it, especially in this day and age. I totally get it. But it, it, it is a labor of love and resilience. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get to delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind, am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if 
if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on equippedmovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on equippedmovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. How did you come up with the idea for Terra Cafe? There's so many coffee machines out there. There's so many espresso machines. Why, where did this come from? Where you're like, I'm gonna create a new one. One of the first things that was really interesting to me that caught my attention was I remember it was like 2016 and I was just doing a survey. I just wanted to do a quick pulse check. It was by no means a fully baked idea. I just wanted to do a quick survey being a coffee enthusiast. How many people actually could name a brand of espresso machine outside of Nespresso? Well, they're all like really hard to pronounce, right? I mean, that's like part of it. Mine, I can't that pronounce. That certainly doesn't help. Uh, it doesn't help. <laughs> there was like, like an Italian word. No one knows how to say it. You know? I don't know. Maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, it was, it was really interesting to me because I think at a quick glance, like if you really uh, just gloss over the category, it's interesting that people will look at it and say, there's, a, there's, there's, there's 5,000 different coffee brands and you're like okay well like let's parse that out like between coffee as the consumable and coffee as the hardware and then you're like okay within the hardware like let's parse that out and it sounds like i'm going from like a top line market size and drilling down into like the segmentation but really ultimately what was really interesting was when it came to home espresso nobody especially in like 2016 2017 nobody could name a brand outside of espresso it was very very rare and of course nowadays like that's since grown with the pandemic and you know i think a lot of people did a lot more homework in terms of like what options are out there and of course the category has grown as a result but you know i would say like you know there are other brands now that people are familiar with but largely speaking when it came to home coffee people needed it easy they needed a simple solution and they were resorting to pods it was like pre-purchase if you did a survey, it was like the third highest reason of why they picked it. And then post-purchase, it was the number one reason by a huge margin was convenience. I just, I get the capsule machine because 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, I got one bloodshot eye. I need to hit a button and get the get the drink easy. And I was like, okay, I understand that. When it comes to your home experience, you need things to be seamless. That's an important part of that journey in terms of your morning coffee routine. But there are other elements that were important, which was that the bar out of home kept raising was your tips in cafes getting more artisanal, getting, you know, getting more crafty with the different drinks and concoctions, almost like having like a, almost like a cocktail bar kind of vibe to the whole space. And you're like, this is getting really scientific from the consumable itself to the ambiance. Everything was getting really, really elevated. And we, I kept looking back at the home experience and I was like, there's nobody doing anything different here. This is just the same rinse, repeat, same brand releasing different SKUs that do the same thing. And that was honestly the beginning of it. There's so many more layers to testing things out and me trying to be humble in the fact of maybe this isn't an opportunity. Maybe this is harder than what I can realistically achieve. Maybe it needs to be capitalized differently. There were so many thoughts that would go through my mind. And frankly, when I was initially fundraising, I would get peppered with questions that I didn't have empirical evidence for. And I was like, yeah, you're right. That is a really good point. Like maybe... Nespresso does try and come into our category, or maybe something else does happen. Like maybe we won't be able to convert 
at that price point because I didn't know yet. I hadn't really gotten to market. And I just remember how much that hurt where you're like, those are really valid points, but I really also would need the money to test this out. Well, it's also interesting that you take that and accept that. And you're like, okay, yes, this could be a deal breaker for building a business like this. You're right. You know, I think sometimes, at least I know for myself, when I was told stuff like, oh, this may not work, well, I would just like fight back. Like, no, you don't understand. Like, and, you know, I had a hard time, I'm serious, being accepting of that kind of critical feedback. And I think now that I've had my first business, my second go around, I'm certainly going to be like, you're right. That is a red flag or a warning that I need to think about and prepare for instead of just shut it down, you know? <laughs> I think that I think there's two different types of responses to that. <laughs> and you had a very like mature maybe response to that. And mine was like, um, get out of my way. I'm gonna do this anyways. I love I love the characterization of it being mature. I would say I pretty much felt like I was shooting myself in the foot every time I was doing a pitch and I was like, why do I like So you took it too much to heart, you think? You yeah. like actually listened too much to other people, whereas I didn't really listen to anybody. <laughs> I, so yeah, somewhere I, in between I, is probably a good balance. Exactly. I definitely like the idea of like data gathering. I think the only thing that would ever get me thrown was when people would just be like, I would never drink that. So that makes no sense. And you're like, okay, I think that's very idiosyncratic. You're going off a sample size of N equals one to determine the entire market. I understand why that's sometimes the head headspace for investors, but I also find it very closed off in the sense of like where you're trying to seek opportunity to only use yourself as the proxy or barometer for whether or not an opportunity exists. And that was the only one that would ever get me riled up was I, I wouldn't drink that or, 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 you know, I just, I like my Nespresso. Like that's totally fine. I'm actually not trying to disparage or be derisive towards them, but recognizing or acknowledging an opportunity is different than saying you like your Nespresso. That's a different thing. It's like, sorry, buddy, this isn't about you. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> this isn't really for you. <laughs> This is for, this is for a market here. <laughs> I think that's one of the toughest things in fundraising is like oftentimes like you're looking at the profile of the individual and you're like if this doesn't resonate with them personally, how am I going to actually get them to see what I'm seeing? Well, now you know what female founders are up against all the time if they have any type of like female remotely like a product for women, right? Like they're always Absolutely. like oh, Maybe let me ask my wife or whatever. It's like, why? Why do I have to talk to your wife about this? Let's be honest. Like, aren't you supposed to understand like market dynamics a little better than that? Yeah. And it's it's <laughs> why a multitude of opportunities will just go missed uh, because you're simply saying like, I don't understand that product. I'm like, yeah, well, it's, yes, it's, it's indeed not designed for you is the point. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. It's not for everyone here and right. it's not for you either. And that's okay, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Tough fundraising. Yeah. So how much have you raised so far? And talk to us about fundraising, I guess. So, so you had this idea, you're like, I'm going to start running with this. It's a lot of money to build hardware. Right. It's a lot of time and money to, to get to market as a hardware business. It's extremely hard. How yeah. Do you, it, do that? I, I think that's one of the best things I learned from my previous startup was just how to be judicious, how to be scrappy. I think speaking Chinese, speaking Mandarin was a, a really good competitive advantage in terms of getting started. Just given in our entire category, virtually everybody is, is producing over there. So you really do need to understand that landscape to be able to really bring something to market. I spent a lot of time, you know, tapping into my network in Germany to get started. But ultimately, I used my savings from banking and a lot of grit 
to get something made. So if I was buying samples of other competitor products to understand better, I wasn't buying new ones. I was buying used and you do your teardowns yourself in your tiny apartment, you know, in, in deep Brooklyn, or you, you just need to find there, there are a lot of paths outside of, you know, just the conventional like fundraising to build, you know, what oftentimes leads to a company like Juicero. And, you know, you haven't really validated things. I'm failing to realize. Which for people that don't know what Juicero is, it was basically what, what the juice machine that actually didn't need the machine. It was like, you're put in this thing right. that you actually don't need a machine for. And so they raised like all this money from investors for a machine that like basically wasn't even needed because you just could put the pouch in your cup. Right. Wasn't that it? <laughs> I think they raised $120 million to make a juicer that you could squeeze the pouches with your hand. And it was like incredible that, you know, that wasn't tested. But frankly, the, the problem that I would say is like the misaligned incentives is like they didn't need to test it. They had the money to say, like, let's just, you know, make the coolest possible product and we'll put a price tag on it. People will pay for it. And I remember my engineering friends, all the mechanical engineers out there, they would always be like, but it's really beautifully put together. I'm like, I understand, but that doesn't mean that there's a business case around it. And I had to live and die by our sales. Like that was it. I had to get out to market. I didn't have, I was still bootstrapped for a while before we got our first check. And I, I remember being in New York, having two prototype machines and getting out into the streets, knocking on the doors of every retailer in Soho, just asking if I could serve coffee to their weekend crowd. And, you know, you knock on a hundred doors, one person says, yeah. And I would, that's how I got the word out. And I would demo the product. I would let people try it. And that was, you know, where I would first started getting the empirical evidence to kind of respond to some of those inquiries that I was getting from investors. And every time I would go out into the wild, I would say, look, if there isn't resonance with the market, that's a good thing for me to know. Of course, there's idiosyncrasies to the New York market, but if there isn't, there isn't. And sometimes you need to be wise at calling a spade a spade, because then it also helps you iterate the idea into something that could be viable, but immediately we were seeing such a positive reception and it was like, okay, well, there is something here. There is an opportunity here because people weren't familiar with bean to cup espresso machines. They wanted something that was more sustainable. They wanted something that was almost like proud. They were, they would be proud to have it on their countertop. I always felt like our category didn't respect the both physical and temporal space it occupied. So yeah, it's very like functional, right? Like a lot of them are focused on function, not really design. I don't think I don't think it's too too like casual to say like it's a flex product. Like people have it on their countertop. If you have a dinner party, chances are people are gonna at some point make their way into the kitchen. They see this beautiful espresso machine. Like, what is that? And you're like, yeah, they they want to feel excited about it when they're making the purchase. And that's how we got started was just like, you know, I remember I didn't even have a dolly. I just had I these big IKEA bags and I would put the machines on my shoulder. And I would just, I felt like I was living the kind of pursuit of happiness in reverse. And I was, you know, you weren't started in finance, ended up on the subway schlepping, you know, hardware products. And <laughs> yeah. I was just surf coffee. And I would, we were actually seeing a lot of success with our sales. And I was like, okay, well, like that's, that's actual validation. That's corroborating the thesis was the organic growth of the business. And that's how we got started. I feel like as an entrepreneur, you cannot have your self-worth at all wrapped up in the money you make. <laughs> like you just can't because you're, that's like, you literally, you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with like, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of money one time and then I'm going to make nothing. And then maybe hopefully I'll make money again. And then maybe I'll make nothing again, you know, but it's like this constant roller coaster you have to be okay with. I think a lot of people have like pride in how much money they make and what kind of like accessories they can buy or cars they can have or whatever, you know, and that lifestyle really gets them hung up. 
but yeah, you can't have any attachment to that as an entrepreneur. You it's just it's honestly kind of like woven into the fabric of the company. And I actually love how judicious everyone is, especially in this climate where everyone's like, hey, like we need to cut costs or we need to be, you know, extend our runway, manage burn. You know, I find that that tightening of the belt is actually creating a lot of tension in other orgs, whereas in ours, it's like, yeah, no, we've always been this way. Like, I love our office space, but it is not a glamorous, flat iron, all amenity building. It is a warehouse space that feels, I would say, aesthetically actually more aligned to the business. And, it, you know, these massive windows that get sun drenched and it feels beautiful. We have lots of plants, but like, it's a factory floor. It's a box with columns and a wooden, you know, it's a roof over your head. And I remember I was talking with the team as we were growing and I was like, do we want to consider, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to be able to do that right now, but do we want to consider one of these buildings as we've been growing now, you know, being 35, touching on 40 people, everyone's reaction was basically unanimous. I'm like, no, we kind of love it here. Like, I don't want that to change. Like, I really would like to keep this part of our ethos and our brand identity is these kind of like, DIY spaces. It makes you feel like you get your hands, you know, dirty, you get involved. And those are the types of people we want to attract anyway. So why would we change the space? And I was like, I think we've hired the right people just by virtue of having to resort to spaces like this, as opposed to just going for the most luxe thing that we could say, look at my office compared to your office. It's like, I don't think that's incentivizing or promoting the the right things or where real value is created within that connective tissue of the team. And when it comes to one of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in building out this business, we were kind of talking about this before we were recording. There was a time where you almost were completely out of business in like a week. And so can you kind of tell the listeners about, you know, that really, really tough time? And I'm sure there's been many, but I think that one is uh, that one specifically is really important because I think there's a lot of times when founders, you know, hit the ground and they're just like, oh, my gosh, how do I get back up from this? Or looks like things are going sideways. I guess I better start thinking about my next thing, you know, <laughs> like get a job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's OK to acknowledge those feelings. I think it's almost more important is to like actually acknowledge that they exist instead yes. of trying to. That's why I want to ask about these things, because they exist for everyone. These feelings exist for everyone. Every founder I've had on the show has had some sort of like self-doubt, some sort of uh, feeling like they are, their company is going to fail and then they were able to pick themselves back up. Like everybody experiences this pain and suffering. <laughs> I would say that, first of all, I do lean a lot into my mother's often reiterated expression of, you know, luck comes to those who are prepared to receive it, which... It is like a make your own luck kind of thing. And I definitely think it's like all entrepreneurs need to give up a little bit of their success to luck, like things that work out. And it also means that like for people that are working really hard, it's not really your fault necessarily that things don't pan out. It's like sometimes you do need that, you know, magic dust to happen for th the stars to align. But I, I, I really think with startups, it's a numbers game and like staying in the ring as long as you possibly can um, before throwing in the towel. I think the good thing about sports for me was it built a level of resiliency that like when you push your body into like far beyond what you think you can do, you also kind of carry that torch forward into like, you can push your like mind, spirit, energy past what you think you can handle. I don't want to get like too masochistic here, but I definitely know for me, that was a big part of my story. Like I was eating one meal a day for a year and a half because I knew every penny I had, I was trying to save for the company. And can you imagine that like what cost that came at with relationships with family, relationships with friends, relationships with loved ones. Like it was a really hard 
trade-off to be okay with because you recognize you're like, these are oftentimes what they say is like the core of human happiness is the authentic and healthy bonds you have with your, your family's friends and loved ones. And, you know, it can be, doesn't have to be all three, but like at least having that in your life. And I felt like I was almost compromising that every day that passed and including my own health, because I wanted this to work out. And I, I remember there was, it was basically December of 2018 where I wasn't giving up myself per se, but just in terms of the money I had for myself to pay rent, eat, like whatever I could, big on that bodega life at the time, just to have like a basic level of sustenance, if you can call that food that. But it was that, paying for that and paying for the business. And I wish I had screenshot my bank account at that time, but I basically, you know, had just barely enough to survive the rest of the month. And I was like, okay, well, like I need to come to terms with the fact that I gave this a good run. And I was trying to find my peace with it. And I was trying to exercise a bit of stoicism. And I was like, okay, I gave this a good run, but I literally won't make it to the end of the month. Like I can't, there won't be a, a subsequent month, let's say. And I remember that was, it was one week away from when that was, I was going to have to call it and even consider moving back home with my parents and trying to explain why their son, who was an investment banker now can't even afford their <laughs> tiny, tiny apartment with a myriad of roommates in, in deep Brooklyn. But I, <laughs> I just remember getting that, that email that, you know, we had been accepted into an accelerator program, which was, you know, I kind of, I almost collapsed basically. It was like, you know, crying of, happiness and also like i was like okay i guess this like the show goes on like let's keep going and that's what it, it came down to and even that i know that i'm 95 percent confident that they had forgotten about me in that application because i had applied months prior hadn't heard anything i sent my last monthly update like we are making real sales this is actually there are there's legs to this business and they emailed me and they said can you come in right now to present this and i said yeah i'll be right there and i was you know kind of almost using that as a way to corroborate my decision to come to New York and handle the cost of living that is living in New York city by saying, look, I was just here. I was, you know, that was a lucky moment where they said, come in right now. We're all here. Jumped on the four train. I was on the last stop and, you know, had my Ikea back with the espresso machine on my shoulder and went in there, demoed the product. And they said, can you come again tomorrow to the final round? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I will be there. I'll start us off. I'll serve coffee for everybody and we'll get the day started. And they're like, that's great. And I was notified, you know, not long after that we had been selected as one of the few companies. And I was like, okay, like that, you need those inflection points. You do need, you know, certain, those are, you know, certain zero to one moments where of course it's still early on. There's so much execution risk. There's so much still to validate. We still hadn't even arrived at any sort of mass production. You need those moments. And I think that for me, it was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of compromise with no guarantees. And that's really the hardest thing. There's no promise that that was going to work work out. There's no promise that anything works out. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays more than ever. No promises here in this. And you're like you said, majority end up failing and it just gets harder and harder as you get going too. You know, I think the failure rate actually increases as you grow rather than decreases. The, yeah. There's like the, the fallacy would be like, let me grind at this point until it gets easy because it's just like, I think you're going to have this like false promise or this like mirage in the desert that you're always trying to like march towards. And I think it's finding kind of comfort and discomfort 
And then also I've always told my team, I really like to feel my wins and I like to feel my losses because I think it kind of fuels me more. So I've always been a big fan of pausing to try and enjoy the moments that you really can recognize a win. I have been reminded by my team, or at least one person on my team recently, because we, we we have recently announced our new product, which is the reception has been incredible. And we're just all overjoyed with, you know, something we've been working on for several years. You know, you test and you hope you validate it enough to prove that there's interest in it. But now having seen the response, uh, you know, being orders of magnitude greater than what we anticipated, he reminded me, he's like, I know you're still sprinting. You got to remember to pause and like appreciate this win because that's a really big moment. And I was like, you're right. You're right. And it's kind of that expression of like, do as I say, not as I do. But <laughs> I was reminded to to pause and, and appreciate the win there. So I think it's really critical in the journey to have those moments. Of course. I, I completely agree. I think it's really important because as a founder, you're just like, go, 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 go. And okay, just another win, but I'm going to lose something tomorrow. So I don't want to celebrate or get too excited. But you do need to have that celebratory time to look back and reflect on all the hard work that it takes. So that's one of your wins. Congrats on the new product launch. What's one of the losses that has happened recently? I think it's more of a iterative kind of like, game so i don't know or it's like a like a multi-stage game so i'm not sure that this is uh, a, a full l yet but i do think the landscape has been changing on us substantially right now and that's in a number of different ways but you know i do think that the especially the kind of like sales and marketing and distribution landscape has really evolved in such a way that it is increasingly more difficult for companies that especially in the e-commerce space that kind of live and die by that performance to be able to not just sustain but scale and grow in an economical and you know sustainable manner and that's one of those things where you know i, I always like the expression that growth for the sake of growth is not the ideology of a viable business it's more the ideology of a cancer cell, not a viable business. And it's like, I think that's a really prudent, you know, advice for a lot of people that feel like they have to grow all the time. Otherwise they may not be attractive for, for investors or for, for talent or what have you. But I think there, there has been a very good check on everyone's kind of philosophy on how they're operating about whether or not that is healthy for the company, healthy for the business, healthy for the world at this growth at all costs mentality. But it has posed a lot of challenges for people that are still in the early stages of their life cycle. And it has created a lot of tension. So it's it's definitely one of those things where I, most of the e-commerce companies I know ourself obviously included has been you know reflecting on what is the real North Star of the business. And that has come at some kind of cost in terms of like what we prioritize and and how we how we grow as a company and what we're willing to accept and what we're not but i definitely think that that is a challenge maybe not so much an l so i don't know if i fully answered your question there i'm trying to still think through that real time to find a more concrete loss but i definitely feel like our addressing the 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 kind of like marketing landscape has been incredibly challenging, especially given we're a highly seasonal business. So right now is our peak season. Right now is the time where the majority of the sales happen. Holiday season. Yes. We're recording during November here. So yes, peak season for you guys building brands. Right. So 
you know, I, I totally understand. There's a ton of different wins and losses, and I know we're running out of time. So I just want to kind of summarize or kind of finish up here with what's kind of some final advice you have for entrepreneurs tuning in. Obviously you've provided a lot of insight and advice, but what's some final words there? And then also what's next for Terra Cafe? Yeah, a lot to share there. I would say for the kind of earlier stage founders, similar to what I've spoken to is resiliency and also recognizing that resiliency is doesn't always look like a Rocky Balboa theme song, you know, playing and like, you know, punching a heavy bag. It oftentimes looks like having balance, having equanimity and how you respond to things. So having peace in terms of different challenges that you face every single day, because that'll shape how you engage with others, with your team, how you cultivate a healthy workspace. So it's that level of EQ. And, you know, I speak to stoicism, but my whole, you know, everyone who knows me knows I really get excited about things. So they're going to laugh when they hear that. But I think that at least when it comes to challenges specifically, I think it's incredibly important that resiliency is how it shows is how you respond to those moments is both recognizing, acknowledging that it's a challenging moment that spikes the cortisol, but then finding peace with that to focus on actual solutions and next steps. And that's really on the earlier side, because I, I, I do really believe that it can feel like a barrage at times, and you're just focusing on putting one foot in front of the other. But doing that in a clear, calm, collected headspace is incredibly valuable. And it also speaks volumes to third parties that look at you and how you operate as a business. To later stage people, avoid myopia. Again, like never trade what you want the most for what you want at the moment. I know there's a lot of pressure. I completely understand that you know people want to hit certain objectives, milestones, but I think making sure that you're really clear on who you are as a company, what your identity is, what your North Star is, and staying true to that is getting increasingly more difficult. So I would hope that everyone takes that kind of headspace to how they operate, because I think it also really just yields better, healthier companies that are more value accretive than destructive. And then, yeah, for everyone, breed a space for like psychological safety, build a space for your team to be able to say things like, I don't know, I need help, or I made a mistake. I think you get the best out of people. I think that giving everyone a space to to say those three things is what means you're getting somebody who brings their best self to work every day. And I think it is often hard to do that, but it requires actual pause, reflection, and explicit communication to everyone that that is important to how you operate to all the founders out there. Awesome. And I know you just launched a new product. What's next for Terra Cafe? What are we going to see next year? Or when they're oh listening my gosh. this year. Yeah. <laughs> so we are in the pre-order phase. This is, yeah, I don't know exactly when this is airing, but I I, 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 I know that the, the team is just all working really hard to get all of those pre-orders out the door. Like we said, the reception has been incredible. So we have quite a backlog to get through in terms of production, but uh, we're all really excited. So we're sprinting towards MP or mass production to fulfill all of those pre-orders. And then just have a lot of exciting updates when we have a connected device out, out in the world that is really just redefining a category. So if anybody's interested in getting an espresso machine at home and wants it to be made easy and from fresh whole beans, not pots, you know where to look, terracafe.com. Bean to cup. I love that saying, bean, bean to cup. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story. Of course. Thank you for having me, Lee. It was a great time. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.